Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever the mission, home or away, Enterprise helps over 120,000 people every day. With vans of all shapes and sizes, if you have a plan, Enterprise has a van. No matter if you need to rent for an hour, a day, a week or longer, Enterprise offers great rates for you or your business. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Please take into account that some of the stories you're about to hear, which involve the issue of suicide, might be triggering. Do take care. After a global pandemic, it seems as though we've entered the final stretch. But for the horse racing world, 2020 represented a series of tragedies that has thrown the sport under the spotlight. The 2009 Grand National winner Liam Treadwell died in June after taking a cocktail of drugs, a month before the suicide of Michael Curran, stable lad for Golden Horn. And in February, the former jockey James Banks took his own life. Does horse racing have an underlying issue with mental health? The short answer is yes. Recent findings show that more and more jockeys are seeking help. They've had enough and the sport must act. But what is being done? Over the course of the next hour, TalkSport takes a closer look at the pressures jockeys face in such a demanding environment. Tony McCoy, the winning Manchester Hunt rider of all time. There's a side inside them that would rather, God forbid, die than fail. A unique lifestyle with a drink and drug problem. I can tell you the amount of times I've turned up to the races knowing if the testers were there that I would have failed it. The families that have lost loved ones swallowed by a relentless existence. He was, he was psychotic. His total behaviour was psychotic. He was drinking all the time. And those in positions of power who are working tirelessly to protect those who give so much. The sport has stopped just paying lip service to mental health and has started to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. This is The Fallen Jockey. A talk sport documentary. Can she do it? Yes! We have history! The first lady jockey to win the Grand National is Manella Times and Rachel Blackmore, and it's been won for the first time by a lady jockey, Rachel Blackmore. I doff my cap to you. I'm Rupert Bell. For the last 20 odd years, I've been covering horse racing for talk sport and the past few have had their ups and downs. From the wonderful high of Rachel Blackmore becoming the first female to win the Grand National, to the low of trainer Gordon Elliott pictured sat on a dead horse. Our sport has recently hit the headlines for a number of reasons. One such reason is the focus of this documentary. The suicides, the countless failed drug tests, the jockeys who have come forward searching for help. I thought I knew this sport, having loved it since I was a small child back in the 60s. But now it's apparent that there's a whole side to horse racing that I was completely unaware of. Whatever the walk of life, confronting your mental health and asking for help is the first step towards recovery. Research carried out in 2020 by the Professional Jockeys Association alongside the Injured Jockeys Fund proves that more riders are now coming forward. Here's the PJA's chief executive, Paul Struthers. 128 jockeys access some form of one-to-one mental health support. Quite frightening when around 30 to 33% of our members have felt the need to access it. I think it just goes to highlight how difficult a way to make a living it is. So what are the stresses? They have to be fully committed to it. And with the nature of racing, Being a a seven-day-a-week sport, that commitment is full-on. The kind of demands on them are huge, both from a physical, 
mental and in, in many ways financial point of view really. I just think if you were designing a sport that could challenge someone as hard as possible, both physically and mentally, you would design horse racing for a jockey. Last year, the charity Racing Welfare saw a rise of 43% in those from within the sport seeking help. And Synchronised is powering away for John Joanneal. Brilliant from Tony McCoy. One of the best to ever do it, Sir A.P. McCoy. He rode a record 4,358 winners in his career. A champion jockey, a record 20 consecutive times. Another who put his body on the line day in day out there's probably a touch of madness in every jump jockey for a start because you know there's not very many sports where there's two ambulances following you around and to do it there has to be a little element of madness in you every elite sports person has a madness there's a switch in them all there's a side inside them that would rather god forbid die than fail you know there's a, they, they go to the extreme there's a, a darker side to them i think because that's what makes them they're prepared to go to the very end to, to make it happen ap carries a long list of battle wounds punctured lungs, broken bones in his arms and legs, back in numerous places, and his collarbone, to name a few. The sport can have a damaging effect both physically and mentally. T for two will win a first ever grade one win in Britain over jumps for a female rider, Lizzie Kelly. If things are going well, you pile on the pressure because you want them to continue going well, and it's more of an internal pressure, really, whereas... You know, when you have a bad patch, you start thinking, oh, the train doesn't really want me. Oh, the girl that's leading me up thinks that I'm useless. You know, the owner doesn't want to have me. He'd rather have someone else. Those sorts of things, it becomes more about what everyone else thinks. Racing has been described as a dog-eat-dog sport. There are 450 licensed jockeys in the UK, as well as 300 amateurs. The fear of being replaced or missing out on rides has a huge impact on jockeys' mental health. It's a recurring theme among jockeys, past and present. The fear of missing out and being replaced, left behind. Riding over 1,300 winners and winning both the Gold Cup and the Grand National, here's Mick Fitzgerald. When you're self-employed, every day you're not riding is another opportunity for somebody else to get ahead of you in the queue. You start to build a bit of momentum and then you get injured and you feel like you go back to the back of the queue again. So you have to almost start again. And that could be soul-destroying. The PJA's chief executive, Paul Struthers, details the unique challenges faced by jockeys. So you're looking at around £28,000 a year for a flat jockey and actually nearer to £16,000 a year for a jump jockey. You then add in the relentlessness of the fixture list. Flat jockeys would have two four-day gaps in the racing calendar where there is no flat racing. Jump jockeys have one four-day gap and a further 10 to 12-day gap in summer. There is no seasonal break like you would have in football or cricket or rugby. Most jockeys will win somewhere between 5 and 10% of the times they ride. Racing by its nature is a losing sport, all with the spectre of being replaced by another jockey hanging over them. If they say no to a trainer, will they ever get their ride back? That seems to be the fear pushing them to complete a long season. Here's one of the best in the business, Aidan Coleman. Everyone is basically a slave to what the powers that be want us to do. And if they put racing on, trainers will have to run horses because owners will want them to run and we'll have to go ride them. How hard do you think it is for the guys who are not riding the six or 700, you know, or maybe riding 200 times a year, maybe even less? I mean, it is a, it's a tough lifestyle, isn't it, at that level? Oh, God, yeah. You see, and I see it every day as well. I know these guys are friends with these guys. So that is not an enjoyable situation to be in there. You know, that is a tough living. I can promise you that now. They're doing the same miles because they're still driving to the same race meetings we're driving to. But we might have three rides in the day and they're still spending six hours in the car to have one ride that's got no chance scraping a living together. That, that, whoa, not for diamonds for me now. Most jockeys will drive the length and breadth of the UK to pick up rides. They can average around 40 to 60,000 miles per year, though some will have drivers. Most will complete these arduous journeys on their own. The sports obsession with pounds and ounces lends itself to the name where the jockey and their kit are checked before and after each race. This is the weighing room, as Lizzie Kelly outlines. I think that jockeys can hide 
how they're feeling very well because the weighing room is like a moving circus and sometimes you know you go nearly every day seeing the same people and yet you, know, you don't actually really have a full conversation with anyone. To this day, the ongoing battle to maintain their weight can make or break a jockey's career. This is something that the PGA's Paul Struthers is under no illusions about. They have reduced calorie intake. They are very limited in what they can take, which is you know quite the opposite of lots of other sports where they're often encouraged to take in additional calories. Dr George Wilson and the team at Liverpool John Moores University conducted a dietary intervention study with jockeys working to change the culture. Jockeys associate not eating and the size of food with weight making and that's that's a myth. You know we hear phrases like flipping. What is that um, in, in basic terms? Yeah, well, flipping is a, uh, an industry term for making yourself sick and bringing back up your food. Former flat jockey turned TV pundit Jason Weaver has admitted to flipping in the past. I think if we're being totally honest, a lot of jockeys will think of an avenue to go down to help them beat the scales the next day. And as far as flipping is concerned or making yourself sick, I remember going to um, California as a young kid. I went to go into the, the gents in Santa Anita, and it was in the jocks room, uh, into the first cubicle. And one of the guys shouts to me, hey, 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 what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go into the, go into the toilet. Not in there, not in there. So what do you mean not in there? That's the flipping bowl. Aged just 23, Ryan Marnia won the 2013 Grand National on the 66-1 to outsider Aurora's Encore. To everyone's surprise, he quit the sport just two years later because of the pressures jockeys face to make the weight. My days eating before I retire was terrible. It'd be a Red Bull and chocolate in the morning for my breakfast and you know more junk and more rubbish. So how bad did it affect you? Terrible. So you'd have sugar highs and then you'd hit an almighty low and just makes you feel like completely down in the dumps. Um, like, like sometimes that the world is ending. Certainly got caught up in that vicious circle and that spiraled out of control. Jason Weaver stopped riding too due to stresses of weight management and the dangerous impact it had on his mental health. I was going into a place that I didn't want to be. So the situation was, either you take a step back from where you are, or I'm going to go into some serious dark corner of my mind that I, that I don't want to be in. I often think about it now, I would have been in a terrible state had I tried to continue with where I was. And uh, I believe it, it probably saved me. Another issue that jockeys face on a daily basis is social media abuse, including 2021 Cheltenham Festival winner, Aidan Coleman. Everything from you're a useless such and such to insulting your family, wishing you ill as in serious injury, or you break your neck, you get that a lot. And then you get something like, if you've got kids, I hope they get cancer. Oh, it's vile, really, some of the stuff you get. The pressure to succeed, the relentless nature of it all, the hours, the pay, the constant dieting, the fear of being replaced by a competitor. Jockeys like us all need a release to let off steam as the going gets tough. But escapism through drink and drug use, that's a part of the horse racing culture, the lifestyle for many jockeys that needs to change. You're listening to The Fallen Jockey, a talk sport documentary. Shortly, details on how the sport is moving forward in terms of testing, and the once-banned jockey Kieran Schumark talks me through the highs and the lows of an ongoing career that's on the mend. I suppose you're trying to fit in. I quite quickly realised it was a quite a big drinking culture. You're listening to a talk sport documentary, The Fallen Jockey. Unfortunately, horse racing has made the headlines for all the wrong reasons over the last few years. Breaking news on Talk Sport. Champion jockey Oshin Murphy has been banned for three months after testing positive for cocaine. One of the sport's most high-profile names. This ban was cut in half after it was found that he hadn't actually taken the drug, but was through environmental contamination from a partner at the time. No trace of the drug was found after Oshin, heard here speaking to the My Sporting Mind podcast, provided evidence from subsequent hair samples that he gave. I've given this 
absolutely everything uh, from the beginning the highs traveling the world it's incredible it was super super privileged but i put myself in that position and then i felt like the world had turned against me um or something i didn't really mean to happen as this individual story unfolded before our eyes and as i dug deeper into the ties that drink and drug use has with the sport i was shocked at what i found even the biggest name in racing, Frankie Dottori, has been embroiled in his own drug scandals in the past, being banned from riding for six months for cocaine use. Random breathalyzer tests were introduced in 2003 after a number of allegations of a heavy drinking culture within the sport. The man we just heard, Oshin Murphy, was not allowed to take five rides at Salisbury in 2019 after failing a test. But he's not the only one. The British Horse Racing Authority revealed figures that between 2003 and 2007, 12 jockeys failed breathalyzer tests. There's also been numerous incidents of drink driving offences. More recently, this man. Atty Purse is not for stopping and not for cashing, and Atty Purse wins. Royal Ascot winning jockey Kieran Schumach, only 25, has revealed that he has been fighting a long battle with alcoholism. I rode 20-something winners in my first season. Andrew Balding actually organised for me to spend the winter in Australia. The previous year, Ushin Murphy had spent the same sort of setup. Andrew, he was an apprentice at Andrews, and Andrew had sent him out there and he did really well. It was quite easy, really, without you know sounding too cocky. I was getting these rides thrown at me. And I think that's when the, the drinking kind of started, the socialising out there. It's complete different culture. Kieran went on to detail how his life spiralled out of control when he fell into a cocaine addiction. I couldn't tell you the amount of times I've turned up to the races knowing if the testers were there that I would have failed it. I was, every time I turned up at the races, in the la before getting caught for four or five months, I was turning up at the races prior to that in a state of fear worrying whether the testers were going to be at the races. And what would be a, a night for you then? A night, so I'd finish racing on the Saturday. The drink would be quickly consumed on the way back from the races in the car. We'd head to the pub, I suppose. It would, you know, the drugs would be bought. Not always other people that I was socialising with, quite often just me. There's absolutely no way that I would have slept through Saturday night. I would have been awake for every bit of the night. If I wasn't racing on the Sunday, so this would have been Saturday night, I'd have been awake all through Saturday night and gone on the beer all through Sunday and probably pulled up around 12, 12 o'clock Sunday night. And then I've been racing on the Monday. So that's if I wasn't racing Sundays now. Was it, I mean, you had a bad fall. Yes. You had two months out. Did the did the drinking get worse during that time? Yeah, absolutely. I remember, uh, so I had a bad fall at Lingfield and I punctured, can't even remember, loads of ribs on the, my, my left side and punctured my lung as well. And I was knocked out um, due to the fall. I literally remember waking up in hospital and I, you know, they pumped me full of morphine, but I remember sort of coming to my senses in hospital and just, it just hitting me thinking, God, this could be a dangerous time in my life right now. I've literally, I'm left to my own devices. Kieran was not only hiding his problems from his peers, but also from his own family. Here's his mum, Neve. We just tried to um, talk to him, but it was almost impossible. We would constantly ring him, leave messages for him, but he just did not want to talk. You know, he would absolutely swear blind that he was fine and that he wasn't drinking and that it was basically our imagination, I think, most of the time and that people were lying when they were telling us things about what he was doing. So it was very difficult to get any help for him because he wouldn't admit that there was a problem. So talk me through the day that you got um, tested that actually led to you being found out you had a problem. I was riding at Kempton in the evening. I mean, this happened God knows how many times where I turned up to the races and I knew I would have failed the test, but I just didn't happen to be on the selected list. It happened that the clerk of the scales knocked on the sword and said, oh, Kieran, you're, you're on the list for the test this day. So I thought, you know, I knew I was going to fail it. Anyways, you can imagine how I was feeling for the next 14 days, riding every day and turning up at the races. Just Were you still drinking at this time? Still drinking, yes, yeah went to Kempton on the 15th day 
the stewards came out and called me into the stewards room and I was put onto the phone to the chief in the, uh, of integrity and he told me I tested positive for cocaine and that I was going to be stood down immediately. The biggest relief ever was when I went back and I got into the car and I remember sitting back into the seat and feeling the biggest, biggest weight off my shoulders ever. Now I can get sorted, get better, get help. But you would, if you hadn't have failed, you would have kept on going. You could still be doing that now. I mean, I think it was a matter of like time before I was always going to get caught. I mean, if I didn't get caught that evening, I was going to get caught in the next two months. It was going to happen. But that was the turning point in my life. You're banned for six months. You are now clean. Your career's going right way. Has, in your opinion, racing got a problem? And is it in a position to help and stop? You know, why does racing feel like there are a lot of jockeys doing what you do, drinking in the social life? Because obviously the sport is such a demanding one, time-wise, and the demands on your bodies as well, because you're not allowed to eat. I think there is definitely problems within the sport. I think the testing needs to be sort of ramped up. Uh, The urine sample isn't effective enough. I think there should be hair sampling. Most days then... Even now, you would think some jockeys are riding there when they're not fit for purpose. Yes. Testing is heading in the right direction, as the sport looks set to become the first in Britain to implement on-the-day saliva tests to detect banned substances. The British Horse Racing Authority's chief medical advisor, Dr Jerry Hill, is the man to talk to about the issue. The ideal scenario is that, as a jockey, that actually you can be pretty certain you are going to be tested for drugs and alcohol when you turn up at a race meeting. And that's moving to saliva because we can do greater numbers and actually the cost per test is lower than doing a urine test. That means that actually your chances as a jockey about being tested are drifting very much in the direction of you are going to get tested, whereas historically they were in the, in the direction of you weren't going to get tested because it was a numbers game. If you look at anti-doping in, in sport generally, For the majority of sports, you're looking at performance-enhancing substances. We have to take a bit more of a health and safety aspect, and we're actually looking more for performance-impairing substances. If you're driving a horse at speed, you you pose a risk to other people as well as a risk to yourself if you're not as sharp as you should be and able to make the right decisions. At the moment, the BHA conducts 500 urine tests per year. This, though, needs two testers, male and female, and results take five days. Although more regular testing will put jockeys off using banned substances due to the limits subsequent bans would have, the chief executive of the Professional Jockeys Association, Paul Struthers, knows the issue runs much deeper. I have yet to speak to a jockey who tested positive who was in a good place. And I think the more we can promote the use of sports psychologists just to help jockeys deal with those specific pressures to their occupation i think that can only be a good thing and then hopefully the more proactive preemptive interventions you take you can then hopefully prevent some of those issues developing into something more serious down the line from the bha to the injured jockeys fund There are lots of organisations at play here looking to offer support for those suffering with their mental health. Former England and Arsenal captain Tony Adams first set up the Sporting Chance Clinic in the year 2000 to offer support to sportsmen and women suffering with addiction. And despite all the pain and suffering it has caused, Kieran and his family can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It'd be wrong for me to say it hasn't had an effect on every one of us because it has. Um, I knew nothing about alcoholism before this. I've learned a hell of a lot um, now. And um, yes, but he has built bridges enormously. I've really tried to sort of channel my sort of addictive personality into, I suppose, winning and succeeding. You know, in the past it was tunnelled off into sort of different directions, but I'm very focused now and I'm extremely passionate about the sport and my sort of drive to succeed is great. If only mental health was that easy to solve. I wish it were. I really do. You're listening to a TalkSport documentary, The Fallen Jockey. Shortly, Beverly, the mother of Jamie Banks, 
the much-loved jockey that took his own life in 2020, sits down with me to talk about her son. There were wider issues, you know, there was drink and drugs involved in James's life. And, you know, when he was on drink and drugs, it was just hopeless. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to urge in the Bypassal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to urge in the Channelized Bing Bingus of the Bypassal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode of the TalkSport Daily is brought to you by Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Planning to hire or share a car or van? Enterprise is there every step of the way. Whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for, Enterprise can help. With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Please take into account that some of the stories you're about to hear, which involve the issue of suicide, might be triggering. Do take care. You're listening to The Fallen Jockey, a TalkSport documentary. I'm Rupert Bell, and I'm taking a closer look at the day-to-day stresses that riders have to go through. Data gathered from the year 2020 by the Professional Jockeys Association, along with the Injured Jockeys Fund, found that 128 jockeys, past and present, had one-to-one support, either counselling, sports psychology, clinical psychology or rehab for addiction, 567 one-to-one sessions in all, and four rehabilitation stays. A positive that many are coming forward, but worrying that these numbers represent an issue in the sport. Team for two will win a first ever grade one win in Britain over jumps for a female rider. Lizzie Kelly, who has retired from the saddle, is under no illusions of the problems facing the sport. The thing I think that is quite frightening is that jockeys have statistically have a very high rate of depression in the waiting room, mental health problems. But the other statistic that obviously is relatable to the weighing room is the high percentage of you know young males um, who commit suicide you know and that's you know you put the two together it makes you know re- makes people very worried you know that you've got the high pressures of being a professional athlete you know matched with the fact that suicide is the biggest killer of males from sort of 18 to 30 around that anyway you know and that's exactly what the weighing room is full of. The link between horse racing, mental health and depression dates back centuries. Archer was 10 lengths, the biggest star in Victorian racing. A 13-time champion jockey, he won five derbies and all this in a life that ended weeks before his 30th birthday. Journalist Dave Yates fronted a racing TV documentary last year that explores the life of Fred Archer, one of if not the biggest sports stars in the 1800s. The coroner reported or concluded that Archer had killed himself whilst in a state of temporary insanity. He killed himself in November 1886 when he was just weeks short of his 30th birthday. So th- there were a number of reasons. Now, obviously, the fact that he killed himself two years and one day after the death in childbirth of his wife. But there were certainly other factors. In 1877, he'd certainly started this barbaric dietary regime. He was already using this concoction that was required to strip his system of everything that wasn't absolutely necessary. This was known as Archer's Mixture. This regime was in 
place for about a decade every day of ingesting this explosive mixture and obviously dealing with the consequences that follow. He was a large and spectacularly unsuccessful gambler. He would have felt the pressures that a famous sportsman would feel. Uh, He carried punters' hopes every day. All those would have been factors in Archer's downward spiral. And there's no doubt that many of those, well, all those pressures would still be relevant today. I always look forward to seeing James because you knew we were going to have a lovely day and it was going to be great fun to be with and you'd have such a laugh with him. And he was like that everywhere he went. Beverly Reed is the mother of James Banks, a much-loved jockey, just 36 years of age, 85 winners to his name, and whose last ride came at Chepstow in February 2018. James sadly took his own life in 2020. There was drink and drugs involved in James's life. And, you know, when he was on drink and drugs, then there was, it was just hopeless. You know, racing is very social. You go home and have a drink if you've had a bad day, and you go out and celebrate if you've had a good day. You know, it's how people handle it mentally, I think. You know, if he had a bad day, he couldn't cope with the fact that he had a bad day. He would always beat himself up about it. He'd sort of come up with his own ideas that he was going to start trying to train horses himself and things like that. And it was just, nah. He was, it was psychotic. His total behaviour was psychotic. He was drinking all the time. And were you concerned that he might... Yeah, yeah. I could see a change in James. He was becoming very isolated. Um, He'd lost everything that he had. He'd lost, you know, he drank all the money away and everything. He had nothing. And he did owe a couple of people some money. And I basically think they worked to get the money together to pay the people back that he owed. And that was it. He did write a letter, a 12-page letter that he'd been writing since October before he did, before he took his life. And it explained everything that he'd he'd lived his dream. He'd done everything that he ever wanted to do and more than most people would ever do in a lifetime. I think he felt that he was being a burden to his family. He felt embarrassed because of some problems he'd caused for his friends. And I couldn't get him to snap out of it. He came and saw us all two weeks before. And he sort of, I think he said his goodbye then without us knowing. Did you think then that he he planned it so, writing that letter... And, and everything was being planned and sort of, you know, planning to do it on the sort of almost anniversary of when he quit riding. Yeah. Yeah. When the call came, I mean, what, what, you know, you sound like you've, you've had the conversation, a normal conversation. Were you surprised that he had, I don't know whether the courage or whatever to do what he did? Um, well... It took a lot of courage to do what he did. And it was obviously done with intent. There was no turning back from that. No, yes and no, in a way. Yes, I'm surprised. No, I'm not surprised. Because I tried everything to try and help James. Everything in my power to help him. But I just came up with so many brick walls all the time because he was an adult. Do you still love the sport? And even though it ultimately led to, you know, James's pressures from being in the sport led to him taking his life. Do you still? Well, I'll be honest with you. I haven't watched any racing for a year. I haven't watched any racing since the day this happened. I can't bring myself yet to sit down and comfortably watch it. There is every help out there possible if they want to take it, but they've got to want to do it. Later that year, jockey Liam Treadwell, who was thrust into the spotlight after his sensational 2009 Grand National win on a 100-to-1 shot Mon Mome, died in June after taking a cocktail of drugs. 
He sustained a serious head injury at Bangor in 2016, an incident that was highlighted by the coroner. It kept Liam out of the saddle for half a year. He then suffered depression and the end of his marriage. At James Banks' funeral in February, Liam was one of the pallbearers. The deaths of both Liam and James have left a hole in the racing community. Here's the Professional Jockeys Association's Paul Struthers. Both Liam and James were genuinely just incredibly popular. I've got to be careful, but we, we and the IJF supported both of them. And they knew that help was there. They knew where it was. They had supportive families. I don't think you could draw, necessarily draw the conclusion it was because they were a jockey. They both stopped being jockeys. Lots of people transition very well. And we have and have had for 20 plus years a charity called the Jockeys Education and Training Scheme that helps prepare jockeys. Unfortunately, there are some people who really struggle with that transition more than others. As well as having the highest concussion rate of any sport, a joint study by Oxford University and the British Horse Racing Authority found that former jockeys are more than 2.5 times more likely to suffer from anxiety or depression compared to the general population. The now-retired Mick Fitzgerald climbed to the pinnacle of horse racing, one of the most successful jockeys of all time, riding over 1,300 winners, a pressure in itself. It's not easy to deal with because when you have a high like that, you're looking for the next one. So when you have a, you know, a bad day, you're thinking about the next day, hoping that it's going to be another high. You know, that becomes difficult for people who have really done well and have experienced an awful lot of success. And then for whatever reason or the nature of the beast, like you fall out of favor and you don't get many rides. For those guys, it's really difficult because you're on a journey that doesn't give you much of that fix. There was such a pressure to perform and to win that, you know, the mental torture of like put myself through for not doing it. That was a final sort of story. Jump jockey David Bass has been very open about his struggles with depression. Bass decided he had to act after agonising defeats at the Cheltenham Festival and in the 2016 Grand National. I got to the stage where I was so hard on myself that I, you know, my health was just really struggling. You know, I, I was so fatigued. I remember having no energy. I remember just being completely fatigued, just didn't want to do anything. Yeah, and, and, and the, wor the worst thing is you don't know what is wrong with you. I had a conversation with a colleague you know I was, I was explaining to him I was like I'm just you know I'm I'm so down I, I can't find joy in anything I'm massively fatigued and he actually said to me you know you're, you're depressed and um, I suppose my my mindset from when I first started racing was the reaction that I gave him was like you know I'm not depressed there's nothing wrong with me so the PGA has developed a support network of trained professionals and extensive resources to help those within the sport, especially jockeys, navigate career and lifestyle changes. Their chief executive, Paul Struthers, knows more needs to be done at the top. I think the culture is changing and is there. And jockeys know that the support's there and are willing to talk about it and access it. But I still think there's a long way to go within the wider sport to get other leaders in the sport and other decision makers to actually start factoring well-being in to some of these bigger decisions around racing. You're listening to The Fallen Jockey, a talk sport documentary. Shortly, I speak to those in positions of power and what needs to change in order to support those suffering. As more and more jockeys seek help around their mental health, now's the time to shout about the issue louder than ever. The body is the best bit of machinery that I've come across in my life. You've got to take care of that engine. You're listening to The Fallen Jockey, a talk sport documentary. Racing has become increasingly aware of the various issues facing jockeys, and thankfully, there are places where jockeys can turn to for help. But there is still much more to do. Racing journalist Dave Yates agrees. In terms of the pastoral side of things with jockeys, we're playing catch-up. 
on a leader who has slipped the field, if I can use that racing analogy. Dave created a documentary that looks at the life and death of Fred Archer, one of Victorian England's greatest sports stars. His means of making weight made him delirious and was a factor leading to his suicide at the age of just 29. Maintaining their weight is still a major factor for all jockeys this day and age. Dr. George Wilson conducted a dietary intervention study at Liverpool John Moores University, working with jockeys to change the culture within the sport. I think the jockeys now coming through, led by a handful of real top senior professionals who are really bought into this, you need those ambassadors to say, right, if I can change, and I've been doing it for 20 years, all you young kids coming through, you need to do it differently. So hence, that's why I think flipping is going to be, is dying out. I'm not saying it's finished, but it's dying out. The fact that the race course catering's changed, the fact that the licensing courses now include a lot more on nutrition, the fact that we have sports science support, and the fact that all the stakeholders, PGAA, BHA, or IJF, everybody's singing from the same hymn, hymn sheets gives me a lot of hope for all the young kids coming through. But the key to this is to recruit the jockeys of the future who can make the weights, whatever that minimum weight be set at. It has to allow those people coming through to have half, at least half a chance of making the weights and having a career at it. Otherwise, you're setting people up to fail. Former flat jockey Jason Weaver rode over a thousand winners during his career. The body is the best bit of machinery that I've come across in all my in my life um, and if you if you don't treat it well it will fail you it will let you down and you will have no career as far as being a, a jockey is concerned you've got to take care of that engine despite the devastating effects it has had on wider society there have been some dividends from the changes racing brought in to control the transmission of COVID-19. As the British Horse Racing Authority's chief medical advisor, Dr Jerry Hill details. It's no secret I'm not a fan of dehydration as a means of making weight. I recognise it happens. And of course, one of the main ways that people make weight through dehydration is to use a sauna at a race course. And because of infection control, we had to suspend use of saunas so that meant that actually in order to offset that there was an increase in weight so there was a, an extra three pounds of scales given to jockeys that extra bit of weight took the pressure off them having to follow some of those traditional methods to lose weight which we know is poor for you both your physical and mental health and also those who were dehydrating they couldn't do it on a race course so they actually had dehydrated in a bath at home before they come. And the important thing about that is they had acclimatised by the time they got to the race course at that lighter weight. In terms of your mental health, it's that sudden drop in your hydration status, which actually has negative effects. Research carried out by the Professional Jockeys Association and the Injured Jockeys Fund proves that riders welcomed this change. On the additional weight allowance, 66% of their members wanted it to remain. Only 115 didn't, and the rest didn't mind. 80% of the members agreed that the increased weight allowance helped them manage their weight more healthily. 2013 Grand National winner Ryan Mania agrees. I see it in everybody. Everybody looks healthier, even if it is because they're two pound heavier than they were. You know, it, it just makes such a difference that people aren't relying on on a on a fast fix, you know, just jumping in the sauna to drop two pounds. And, you know, they're thinking, oh, well, I'll have to do it by, by eating healthy or by exercising a bit more. Encouraging news, but the PGA's Paul Struthers has highlighted his game-changer when it comes to the mental and physical well-being of jockeys. Changes to the structure of the fixture list, whereby we're able to give each code, so jump and flat, two breaks a year, whether that's a week, 10 days or two weeks. You're really looking ideally for 10, 10 days or two weeks where there is no racing of that code. Anyone who's got a normal job, there's a reason why it's enshrined in law that we get annual leave. You will get people in racing saying, well, they can just, they're self-employed. They're like a plumber. They're like an electrician. They can just take time off. If a horse has to run, a horse is running. It's not waiting for the jockey to return from holiday. Until and unless that happens, all the work we're doing, all the work Racing Welfare are doing, all the work the Injured Jockeys Fund are doing is just putting a sticking plaster on the problem. Calls are growing louder and louder to make changes to the racing schedule. Here's Cheltenham Festival winner David Bass and former jockey Lizzie Kelly. 
you know, the BHA have got to have some sort of responsibility for that. You know, it's, it's their decision. The fixture list is their decision. The buck falls with them, really, because the lifestyle, you can't choose the lifestyle. You know, it's you're, you're in or you're out. You can't be half a jockey. This is how it is. You're flat out all winter and you have to be busy all summer as well because you can't miss anything. I've still got that mindset a little bit, you know? Well, actually, quite a lot. Richard Wayman is the BHA's Chief Operating Officer, and he's responsible for the fixture list. Another change that we've made in the last in the last two or three years is to bring forward the finishing times of our fixtures, evening fixtures. For most of the year, we don't race now after 8.30. That's the latest we'll go. Um, in the summer, we do go to 9 o'clock. We absolutely acknowledge that it is a demanding schedule that the sport asks of our sports participants. Uh, and of course, there are many sort of pe- stakeholders uh, is a phrase used in racing and race courses want to race. A number of the industry's revenue streams are linked to fixtures and staging fixtures. So the more fixtures you stage, um, obviously that, that supports industry revenues. But it goes beyond that. You know, we also have to service the needs of our customers. And then, of course, we have the horse population and owners as well. You know, people um, paying a lot of money to have horses in training want to be able to run their horses. <laughs> Obviously, the participants' welfare is a, is a key one in, in our thought processes. And, and one thing that does seem to have come out through COVID is there's now the, the in one meeting a day rule. But that does seem to have been very well received. Is that something that you welcome as a long-term potential sort of benefit of COVID if there is such a thing? I mean, it is worth saying that before COVID, jockeys were restricted to nine meetings a week. There were some uh, controls in place, but clearly this has, has taken things further. I think it's probably also worth saying that, you know, another related um, change that came in as part of COVID, and, and again, is a potential source of future uh, improvements for our riders is that when racing resumed back in um, back in June after the suspension, we had a slightly different fixture list in terms of having slightly fewer fixtures. But at the fixtures that we did stage, we had we staged more races. So you had a situation from from June last year where jockeys were riding at one meeting a day. Um, but then when they were turning up at a meeting, there were more races to riding. And so actually, although they were only riding at one meeting a day, their average number of rides at that meeting was actually increasing. Back to the research conducted by Paul and his team. When you look at the one meeting a day restriction brought about by COVID-19, 80% of their members found that there were no negatives and found significant positives. 64% gave the thumbs up to this change, staying in place going forward. Some, however, have taken a different view on the issue, including Sir A.P. McCoy. Since the 25th of April 2015, Robert, I've had five years off. I've got a long, long time off as far as I'm concerned. That's why I'm, I'm quite pleased. I'm quite happy with what I did because I knew that that time would come. And I can't go back then and say, oh, I wish I had maybe worked a little harder. I had a, yeah. Look, I get where people get burnt out and I get where people think it's full on uh, and and. Everyone's different. The world is different than it was when I started, you know. I can't, I don't want to sound here and sit here and sound like a no man who you saw, well, it was different in my day, you know. That's why if the younger generation now think that, you know, they need more time off or it's very difficult, then then it's very difficult, you know. When I first started making this documentary, I was shocked and surprised by what I found and my ignorance of the general situation. I had no idea that so many jockeys were facing difficulties. But encouragingly, the industry now is reacting to the problems. But the biggest change has come from within the weighing room as current and former jockeys are now more than ever opening up and offering their support to those in need. See more business under Mick Fitzgerald is having a magic run. The horse is under pressure. At the line, it's see more business. See more business is the winner. There is a huge support network out there for people who are feeling fragile who are feeling like it's not quite happening for them it's not then treated as a weakness it's treated as something that we can help you with and actually get you to overcome all it is is you're lacking the support to help you understand better 
the feelings that you're experiencing. And sometimes just talking through it gives people a better understanding of how it's gone wrong. And happy-go-lucky for Lady Dulverton, Kim Bailey and David Bass wins well. I've had a lot more conversations with jockeys recently. I felt a sort of responsibility. Maybe I need to start talking about it and open up about it a bit more. Especially since I came out from injury, I, I made a conscious effort to more than ever try and enjoy race riding and be even more passionate about it than ever before. The British Horse Racing Authority's chief medical advisor, Dr. Jerry Hill, found one final dividend brought about by racing's response to COVID-19. I have never spoken to so many people in our sport, even in my own organisation at the BHA, but across the sport, owners, trainers, race courses. And that collaboration has been extraordinary. And I think that's the thing I would really love to see continuing into the future when COVID, please God, has faded away. Because I think if we continue to collaborate, areas such as mental health are going to be so much easier to address. Certainly, historically, what there was that sense that there was only one athlete in the race and that had four legs. And we need to build on it because it is still patchy. But I think if we can persuade people within our industry about the value of the jockey, that if you do nothing else, you don't have to pay more, you don't have more opportunities for that that get them better valued, then I think that will have paid dividends as well in the mental health arena. The one thing I hope from this documentary is that racing remains vigilant about these issues. I'm Rupert Bell and I encourage you, if you're struggling with your mental health, whether you're a jockey or not, speak out, ask for help. You won't regret it. James phoned me one day and he said, Mum, do you fancy going racing tomorrow? So I said, oh, brilliant, lovely. So I said, where are we going? He said, Musselburgh. I said, Musselburgh? I said, that's some Scotland, isn't it? He said, yeah, he said, me and Gavin, he said, we got a ride each up there. He said, I thought you could come and help out with the driving. Six hours to Musselburgh. They both had one ride each. And you just think, they don't do it for the sake of doing it. They do it because they love it. They are amazing people. They should be very proud of themselves, what they put themselves through every day, up at the crack of dawn, bed late at night, and then doing the same thing seven days a week. Fair play to them. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever your mission, home or away, don't delay. Enterprise has the vehicle for the job. Rent from the best lineup in the UK. With over 450 branches, Enterprise has what your business needs. From compact three-door cars to spacious SUVs and people carriers to vans, they offer a large range of reliable vehicles perfect for the job. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.